Welcome to episode 19 of Airmic Talks, your fortnightly podcast brought to you by the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. Well, it has been almost two weeks since Americans went to the polls in the 2020 presidential election, and as ever with big political shifts in the US, there are consequences, both direct and indirect, to consider on this side of the pond. Geopolitical risks and the political landscape are increasingly important for risk professionals to understand and contextualise with regards to their own organisations. So I thought I would invite Airmic's own resident geopolitical expert, Alex Frost, to join me to talk this all through. Alex joined Airmic in April this year as Market Development Manager, but prior to that worked for more than 10 years at Axco Insurance Information Services, including five years as Head of Global Risk Intelligence and Data. Alex and I are also joined by Carrie Nordland, Associate Director at the Annenberg Institute at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Carrie's research interests include race and politics, voting behaviour and the US Census. Important to note that Alex, Carrie and I recorded this discussion on the morning of Friday the 13th of November and I began by asking Carrie to provide an update of where we currently stand in the US election and what happens next. Yeah, well, thank you first of all, Richard and Alex, for inviting me and Aramek for for having me. So uh, at the moment... Uh, the AP called Arizona for Biden overnight. Um, other Fox News had called Arizona on election evening, so now a week plus ago, but the AP just called Arizona for Biden. Um, Georgia and North Carolina are still counting votes. Um, I think for each of them, it's a, they're about 98% in, so there's just a tiny number of, uh, of votes. But, of course, everyone is waiting on Georgia, whether or not that will be called for Biden. He's slightly ahead right now, and, and then behind more than um, more than a tiny bit in North Carolina. So it's likely that Georgia will be called for Biden and North Carolina for uh, for the president. In terms of thinking about what happens next procedurally, and this gets a little bit boring, but also it's kind of interesting to think about too, because there are still a couple openings for the president to uh, to formally lodge his complaints about the outcome of the election. And so the following is what will happen. So local election officials are going to certify the results. And, and that's just is as straightforward as it sounds. Um, the governor then will prepare the official documents and... Um, and also a state of electors. And so this is where we get into the, um, the electoral college. So once the local officials do that, then the governor will then certify the state's the state results. This all has to happen by December 8th. And this also means that any um, legal wrangling that is going on also has to be resolved by December 8th. Um, and the reason why this is, is that all of this has to be resolved before December 14th, which is when officially the Electoral College will meet at various states to certify the state's ele- election results. Now, what happens is that the governor in certifying that will also put forward a slate of electors. And this gets a little bit into the weeds, but is interesting in that there could be faithless electors. And the only reason why I bring up this um, kind of fancy term is that the Supreme Court recently ruled on faithless electors, meaning that in the history of the country, there's been approximately 156 faithless electors. So people who, electors who cast their votes for somebody other than the state that they're representing cast their majority of ballots for. So essentially they just, they went off the, on their own and voted for somebody, uh, voted for somebody else. The Supreme Court upheld two state laws imposing sanctions on faithless electors. So this is all a really roundabout way just to say that if, if, 
electors, individuals, people decided to do their own thing and vote for somebody else. And that could be anyone from Mickey Mouse to the president of the United States in a battleground state like Pennsylvania, that there could be sanctions and legal action taken against them. So there were lots of sort of conspiracy theories of, oh, we can have faithless electors. And you know this is the official certification by the government of who won the election. I think there's less of a chance of that just because there are laws in place that uh, electors have to go with what the sort of overall certification of the state is. So that's December 14th when the Electoral College officially does their duties. December 23rd, uh, the President of the Senate, Vice President Set, uh, Pence, will receive the electoral vote certificates. And then January 6th, Congress will count those electoral votes. And then January 20th, the new president will be inaugurated. And the only thing that I would say about January 20th is that the Constitution, this is one of the few things where the Constitution is really clear about when a new president or a new administration takes, um, takes office, and that is January. 20th. Um, so this is something that legally there would be uh, there would be legal recourse if, in fact, a president who lost the election did not give up, did not give up the Oval Office. I'm not sure if I fully understand the situation properly, but I think from what Carrie's saying, Carrie, I may have it wrong, but isn't there, is it that the, the president and the vice president's term expires on the 20th of January? And that if there is no certified person to take over that role, then there is an interim president who would take up the, the position. But you're you're right in that if I mean, this is the worst case scenario, if the government. So in those various December and January dates, if the government has not certified the Electoral College or there's some malfeasance somewhere along the line, that is the gray area of who's in charge on January 20th. Thanks to touch on that on that worst case scenario. Really nice to have that explanation around the Electoral College and how that works. And of course, we haven't heard that debate much at all in the UK because generally over the last 100 years or so, I imagine, uh, this has all been relatively straightforward. There's been, you know, I think there is a clear, <laughs> I think there is a, I think there is a clear winner in this case, but there's always been a clear winner and it's been quite a civil transfer of power. One, one of the other controversies at the moment, and it probably is a manufactured controversy, is that you know there's allegations around voter fraud, around you know, miscounting of ballots or dumping ballots, whatever that people are coming up with. Just to give us an indication, at the moment in those battleground states, the the, the margin of error does the, the margin between the two candidates is actually pretty big and growing. So even if there was some of the, if any of these cases did make any progress in the courts, which at the moment they don't seem to be, from what I understand, it's unlikely to to overturn any of those those popular votes within those states. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Percentage wise, it's it seems small, like 0.8, less than one percent. But raw numbers are exactly right. It's tens of thousands of votes. Um, but and then also on your second point, Richard, you're right on, which is that there are the legal challenges are there's no evidence and mostly it's hearsay about someone um, anecdotal. You know, I showed up. I, I voted by mail and I followed my ballot and it didn't get counted or I showed up and they already had my vote by mail and I never asked for it. So there is there is no hard evidence. And I mean, the big screaming title in the New York Times, um, if we believe the New York Times over the uh, a few days ago was there has state officials have found no election fraud. And the one other thing that I would add to this is that 
states are, we want to also think about the, the federal nature of our elections, which is that there are a lot of state elections that are, are state level elections that are happening, especially at the state legislature level. And so if we look at a battleground state like Pennsylvania, yes, Biden won Pennsylvania, but Republicans also um, gained in the state house. Pennsylvania state election officials want those results certified because Republicans gained in the House, in the state legislature uh, House. So they there's this you know flip-flop between big D Democrats and big R Republicans that it's not just clear that, oh, this state is all for Democrats or this state is all for Republicans, but they're, you know, state officials want to make sure that their results are certified because there's implications at the state level. Alex, in this current period then of uncertainty, what would be the primary risk factors that organizations should be cognizant of? And and is there anything they can do about it? I think on a risk management level, this is going to play out in two different ways for, for businesses and organizations, and that's operationally and strategically. On an operational level, protests, I think there, there have been some small scale, some, some small, small level protests I, that are probably going to continue for some weeks until the, the vote counting and, and the recount in Georgia uh, and the certification is, is over. Um, Trump supporters have, have already rallied in, in Lansing, in Michigan, in Maricopa County, in Arizona, which is the area around Phoenix, and in Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania. In some cases, this has included militia groups. So I think there's a heightened possibility, although not necessarily a probability, um, of clashes between pro and anti-Trump demonstrators, which would be a concern for businesses and individuals who live in those areas. These would largely take place in in or around large public venues or outside federal or state or municipal property. I mean, think about a sports stadium uh, where ballots were being counted or an exhibition center or where there are perhaps local party offices um, in in office blocks or in commercial areas. This will probably only affect the so-called swing states, uh, where many Trump supporters believe that the vote is is being stolen. Um, but there's also a chance that there could be unrest and, and larger scale protest and, and some violence in larger urban and commercial centers, places like, like Washington, D.C. And obviously, as, as risk managers, we know that the security of in, and safety of employees is, is amongst the first duties of any organization. So you need to be aware of the threat profile of the regions uh, or cities in which your employees operate, and you need to follow local events closely. Um, you need to consider the profile of, of employees and operations, so where they work, where they go day to day, what their routine is. If that routine is likely to be disrupted or them to come in danger because they are, uh, to take an example, traveling through an area on, on public transport that, that may affect, uh, may be affected by unrest. And I think you also have to think about, in case of danger, how your employees would obtain medical care. Um, what is their private insurance situation that, that may exclude some types of, some types of injury? Um, and think about your your employee assistance program that is able to monitor and be in touch with your employees in case they are in dangerous situations following any kind of, of incident. Um, I think there's there's also the possibility of um, disruption to businesses because of disturbance or due to the the heavy presence of of security services. This is actually one of the least known impacts around 
political risks like riot strike and, and civil commotion or terrorism for that matter. Um, the question of business interruption. And often it doesn't need a whole lot of damage um, or you know harm to employees. If you think about the, the Boston Marathon bombing back in, in 2013, there, there were only three people killed, um, tragedy though it was. But in the subsequent two-day manhunt for the perpetrators, the police had to lock down um, 20 square blocks of, of Boston's financial district while they did this. And that causes a lot of, of lost revenue. And if you if you believe that the operations of your facility or your business may be disrupted, it's a good idea to prepare um, to, to use backups, um, maybe prepare to shift production or inventory elsewhere. Uh, in, in either event, it's a good chance to review your, your business continuity plan and your, your crisis management plan. But, you know, I think for me, uh, I, as I say, it's possible, not probable, the overwhelming sense that I get from what's going on in America is an intense sense of relief because the president's lawsuits and, and the charges that have been made, to my mind, I mean, they seem so feeble. I don't know, Carrie, whether that's something you would concur with. It is. I mean, I think feeble is a, is a good word. Uh, everything is being, the way that it's being structured and set up is to play to a person with a very small ego, one, and then two, to set up the, the future for this person as well. So he's got to think about, I, I mean, this is from Twitter, so who knows whether it's true or not. He's shopping around a $100 million book deal. He, you know, the... Um, the Having his own media the, channel, I've The chattering class is saying that Trump TV... Yeah, exactly. Trump TV is next. Exactly. So, you know, for someone who's uh, $400 million in debt, he's also got to think about, as he always will, where his next paycheck is coming from. Um, so I think so much of this is set up so that he can have a political action committee. He can take people's money to pay for this, you know, to buy the books um, that he's going to um, that he's going to get this big book deal for, to have subscribers for his TV channel. I mean, so all, I think all of this is to keep him relevant and keep him in the news and that he's not a loser. Yeah. And I mean, what, what I'm interested to see from, from a, a security and safety perspective is if, as it looks like is going to happen, it's a very regular process that the Electoral College certifies and that we move to a, a, a smoothish transition will be whether there is sustained unrest of any kind by Trump supporters or whether it sort of melts away. And my feeling right now is it'll probably melt away uh, despite, you know, some hardcore, maybe some hardcore protesters. But I, I don't think anything like the large scale violence that, that we were saying could happen looks likely at the moment. There is a planned demonstration in D.C. this weekend. And so I think what you were your earlier points, Alex, about unrest. I mean, th this is the question. So it's it's um it, it um, it's his supporters coming into into DC to um, I don't know protest have their um, have their guns visible. It's unclear what what tone it's going to take. I'm sure it's probably not a happy tone. So I think this will probably be the test of what of what you've been um, highlighting. Really interesting, guys. And Alex, really good to have that um, insight in terms of what organizations should be thinking about regards to on the ground, particularly domestically, if they've got um, operations in the United States and particularly in those hotspots, sorry, in those battleground states or, or around Washington, D.C. I want to move on uh, now to we'll come to kind of the more foreign policy angle in a second with you, Alex. But Carrie, let's have a look at the political scenario. If and again, this is still quite up in the air. I think Biden presidency seems pretty 
pretty nailed on, I'd suggest at this point. But with the Senate, you know, at the moment, 50 to 48, I believe, carry with the Republic in favor of the Republicans for the Senate with two more uh, races taking place in January in Georgia. That might make it level if those are to win. But let's say that if there was a, a Biden presidency with a Republican Senate to begin with, what would be the priority policy areas, do you think, for Joe Biden, uh, which would be likely to be addressed in that that first 100 days of, of his presidency, which actually might have a chance of, of, of making some progress if he was faced with a Republican Senate? Right. I mean, I think that's such a key point, Richard, is that, of course, um, it, it, changes, <laughs> it changes depending on what happens in yeah. in Georgia. Yeah. So so we'll take the first one, which is if the, uh, you know, an uphill battle, if the if Republicans hang on to their majority in the, in the Senate. I mean, the first 100 days are going to be all COVID. Um, numbers uh, are spiking by quite a lot here in the United States. Um, and so it's going to be, uh, so already he's announced a 13-member task force. Um, but I think, so it's going to be around, if the numbers are still high, which they likely will be in you know just a few short months, um, what to do in terms of federal response. Um, so thinking about PPE, thinking about all the things that we talked about last, last spring and how to provide help for the states and overburdened hospitals. It will also be a COVID economic relief bill. And this thing has been kicking around since August and you know no one's able to get it done, but certainly this is gonna be top of his agenda. And what is it that he can do and broker with Mitch McConnell on this particular deal? And then a vaccine distribution plan, which is going to have to be worked out with, uh, obviously, with uh, with the states. There are a number of things in a Republican-controlled Senate scenario, which will be, and he and Biden has said this pretty clearly, in which he will use executive orders to reverse Trump uh, Trump executive orders. So, for example, around um, the the so-called Muslim ban, stopping family separation at the border. He will um, uh, reform the asylum process in um, in terms of immigration, and I, I think this is is interesting because the sub line for this is thinking about a unitary president and a president that does everything, who produces legislation on his own, which of course Democrats decried during the Trump administration. But in fact, the unitary presidency or unitary executive has been building since President Reagan. And so if we think about on the policy, on the precise policy side of things for him to take up executive orders or memoranda or you know presidential directives is exactly in the same line and same vein that we have dec- that Democrats have decried again um, during the Trump presidency. So that's an interesting thing to, for me to watch, just as a presidential scholar, to see how he enacts things with the Republican Senate. Yeah, definitely. And, and obviously, uh, you're much closer to it and have that much keener eye than, than we do, Carrie. But we'll be certainly looking to see how, how that all plays out in, in those first 100 days or so. Alex, uh, again, th- th- let's take a Biden presidency. Um, what impact would that have on a strategic level around an area that you're very interested in, foreign policy? And, and what impact will that have for businesses and organizations, especially here in the UK, as we prepare particularly for the end of the, the Brexit transition in the new year? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a that's a really interesting question, Richard, because I think there's been a lot of noise in the press about how a Biden foreign policy is going to be very different um, from from Trump's. And I think there will be important differences. But, you know, I don't think it's going to differ particularly largely from from the Obama foreign policy and the Bush foreign policy and the Clinton foreign policy. If If I'm being a little bit cheeky until Trump, U.S. foreign policy doesn't really change very much since since 1990. It's the degree to which it's sort of pursued and, and coherent that changes. Although 
if I said that in, in an academic setting of political scientists, I'd probably get jumped on. But if you're if you're looking around at the at the big relationships, the ones that matter to to international business and, and by extension, you know, our, our members and risk managers, I, I think there will be some important changes. If you look at Iran, you know, Biden administration would probably try to move back towards the joint comprehensive plan of action uh, that is designed to encourage Iran to reduce its nuclear stockpile in exchange for a, a relaxation of, of sanctions. That'll create probably a better environment for international business uh, in Iran if, if your business is brave enough to, to take a step in there. You know, my, my personal hotspot in Russia, I expect Biden will take a, a firmer line with, with Vladimir Putin. Uh, although, you know, that said, even though Trump warmed to Putin, like the US government's machinery didn't. So, so there are some sanctions still in place there on individuals and strategic sectors. But it's obviously it's it's the biggest two relationships um, that of, of China and and with Europe and and of course more specifically the UK, which will be most important. I think a Biden administration is is likely to put a lot more emphasis on multilateralism again, but hopes maybe for a for a quick return to an emphasis on free trade and the relaxation of of barriers to capital and investment. I think if people are hoping for that, they'll probably be a bit disappointed. Biden and the Democratic Party in general, although I'm happy, uh, you know, for Kerry, if you want to disagree, have become more protectionist, I think, over the Trump era, as, as they recognize that people have very strong feelings about the offshoring of jobs. And it was one of the major sources of dissatisfaction that brought Trump to power. I think the the outright trade war with China may end. But Biden is likely to be much more outspoken than Trump was on the treatment of, of Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang province about the pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong. I think he's likely to talk more about the threat posed by Chinese state technology champions like Huawei. And as we've seen in recent years, the Chinese are not afraid at all to retaliate um, by extracting sort of economic revenge um, or encouraging popular anger about about comments like that. You know, you saw uh, them take a very firm line with the NBA after the uh, owner or manager of the uh, Houston Rockets made a comment about treatment of Uyghurs. You know, they pressured Australian airline Qantas over its uh, labeling of, of Taiwan on its maps. So I, I think there will be difficulty in that relationship going forward. In the UK's case, Biden's election is a real geopolitical pitfall um, for, for Boris Johnson, because Biden is, has well-known opposition to a hard Brexit, and especially the new internal markets bill that um, Boris Johnson's government is trying to pass. The internal markets bill effectively would allow UK ministers the right to unilaterally override parts of the withdrawal agreement signed between the UK and the EU, um, which puts Northern Ireland in a sort of different customs and regulatory area than the UK, which of course any changes to which would put at risk the Good Friday Agreement uh, in Northern Ireland. And Biden, who has Irish roots himself, has said that there would be no trade agreement unless the Good Friday Agreement is upheld. And we all know that a trade agreement between the US and the UK is seen as key to hopes for, for Britain after Brexit. So I think here more than ever, it's really important to understand your business's operations and its resiliency to shocks like that. You, you have to get the right intelligence. You have to have teams of people who, whose job it is to assess that intelligence about geopolitical changes. And then you have to map out, you know, in scenario planning, different outcomes to make sure that your company is, is resilient. Geopolitical risk management is, is really more art than science uh, a lot of the time. You know, in, in other fields, 
you can analyze the, the history of claims to give you an idea of what's going on in the future. And it doesn't quite work that way in, in geopolitics. Sometimes an understanding of history is, is much, much better. Alex, I had a uh, question for you, and back to your China point. How, what do you make of Xi Jinping not sending any congratulations to, to Biden? I mean, a host of other world leaders have. Is there anything to read into that? I, th- I think the Chinese take a very slow approach to committing themselves to anything so that they can remain flexible. I think I saw a, a tweet pop up this morning that suggested that they had just this morning, uh, this morning, European Times finally sent a, a congratulatory message to uh, to Biden. But, you know, as I say, I suspect they understand that whoever becomes president, China's relationship with the U.S. will be a little bit rocky for the foreseeable future because the Chinese are, are becoming much, much more assertive and the U.S. is becoming, well, at least under Trump, a little bit more disjointed in its response to China. Yeah, so that's been really that's been really interesting, Alex. And I think uh, and and I think we, as we're seeing this week in the UK, there's been quite a lot of turmoil within uh, Number Ten and the advisors uh, surrounding Boris Johnson. And those advisors who appear to have been walking away from Boris Johnson for some reasons I think aren't completely clear yet are the more Brexiteer, hard Brexit advisors who may have been more in favour of a no deal Brexit. And there is, of course, one theory, Alex, and it's yet to be proven. Uh, and again, perhaps based on hearsay, that it may have been a Biden win and a Biden presidency, which has pushed those people out the door, because now actually, you're more likely perhaps to get Boris Johnson forced into a deal by a more engaged American American ally who is who has the Good, the Good Friday Agreement and, and Irish interests uh, more, more close to his heart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Boris Johnson enjoys something of a reputation as being a, a bit of a buffoon. But I, I think, you know, he's actually more of a pragmatist in that he doesn't have particularly strong feelings, uh, ideologically speaking, about about very much. And that suggests to me what, what you're describing, Richard, what we're seeing in number 10 is a recognition that the Biden presidency is really going to change things um, for the UK's plans after Brexit. I mean, I think they will still pursue the the trade agreement, but I don't think that I, I think there's a realization amongst those members of the vote leave campaign who've been very close to Boris Johnson that it's not going to be nearly as easy to wring concessions out of Biden as as perhaps it would be out of Trump. Although Trump talked a very strong game about you know getting what the, he wanted in trade deals, but I think there was more alignment between those actors before. Mm-hmm. 